This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tonight, straight from the source, a remarkable clash underway inside the appeals court that is wrestling with the scope of Donald Trump's gag order. We'll take you inside the heated arguments that happened today. Plus, the White House is hopeful that negotiations between Israel and Hamas for the release of the hostages are, quote, close to the end. The aunt of a three-year-old Israeli-American being held in Gaza, who sure hopes so, will speak with us in moments. And a tech titan's sudden ouster has upended the world of artificial intelligence. The shakeup leaves the future of open AI in doubt tonight, with more than half of its employees threatening to walk out. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, we are closely watching a decision that could come down at any moment and would have significant consequences for the criminal defendant and presidential candidate Donald Trump. Three federal judges right now are deciding whether to keep or get rid of a gag order in that criminal case in Washington, D.C., accusing him of plotting to overturn the election. When it was in place, it restricted his ability to directly attack the special counsel, members of his team, court staff, and maybe most importantly, potential witnesses at his trial. Americans actually got to listen in on these arguments today. The order is unprecedented, and it sets a terrible precedent for future restrictions on core political speech. This is only affecting speech temporarily during a criminal trial process by someone who has been indicted as a felon. No one here is threatening the First Amendment broadly. From what we heard, it sounds like the three-judge panel is poised to reinstate at least some version of the gag order. You heard one judge saying there that it doesn't broadly threaten his First Amendment rights, but they also signaled that they may loosen other parts of this gag order, like allowing Trump to criticize the special counsel. One judge suggested, essentially, that Jack Smith, that special counsel, could handle the verbal attacks. He has to speak mismanners while everyone else is is throwing um, um, targets at him. Can't be that he can't mention Mr. Smith. Surely he is has a thick enough skin. All eyes tonight are on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, waiting for word. And as we wait, joining me now is former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Elliot Williams. Elliot, I, I know this is unprecedented. I mean, Trump has totally blurred the lines between his legal defense, his presidential race. What do you expect the judges to do here? How do they balance that? Yeah, I think they keep some form of gag order in place, Caitlin, but they just carve it up a little bit differently. And the judges seem to be signaling that by perhaps opening... Uh, the gag order up to allowing criticism of Jack Smith directly or or something like that. You see, look, this is, we talk about a lot of legal issues in the context of Donald Trump. And I can say with, with certainty that the First Amendment, free speech, is by far the hardest to figure out because everyone in America 
regardless of citizenship status is entitled to free speech, no one is entitled to threaten anybody else. But the line between those two can be very complicated, and particularly when you're dealing with candidates for office, uh, it, it is just incredible, incredibly complex. And the judges today, who were very exceptionally bright individuals, all three of them, I know them a little bit uh, in, in town here, were really struggling with that. And so we'll just have to see where they, where they land on this. Yeah, it was fascinating to be able to listen in to, to them go back and forth with the Trump attorneys, the special counsel's team. I mean, if this order is upheld, if it goes back into effect, I think what we could see happen is with the judge here, Judge Chuck and having to deal with something pretty extraordinary, which is what happens if Trump violates that gag order? And that's the thing. Enforcement is itself a question. Now, number one, she can she can warn the former president, uh, once again, as he's been warned multiple times in, in, in other cases. But then you move to this great, this new world of some sort of enforcement order, where often in federal court, what you would do is file a new proceeding to bring criminal contempt proceedings against an individual who'd violated an order. That's never happened before, certainly for a former president. And it's, it's you know, it's one of those unprecedented areas. It's just, again, what do you do? And, and, and one of the questions that came up today along those lines, Caitlin, is do you wait for a threat to come or do you preemptively bar him from threatening anybody? Because even that is a little bit complicated and, and a little bit tricky. So I, it just remains to be seen how exactly they're going to handle it. Number one, if he does violate something or number two, if he doesn't and they just want to prevent him from doing it in the future. Yeah. I mean, it's no small task for these judges. We'll see what they decide. Elliot Williams, thank you for, for your analysis. And of course, as we wait to see what they decide, you know, this continuing swirl of legal troubles around the former president, he is still the overwhelming favorite for the Republican nomination, at least at this point in time. My next guest is learning new details about what a second Trump term in the White House could look like. Joining me now with a rare appearance here on CNN, his first on The Source ABC News Chief Washington Correspondent Jonathan Carl, who is the author of the new book, Tired of Winning, Donald Trump in the End of the Grand Old Party. John Carl, it's great to have you here. I mean, as we're waiting to see what these judges are going to decide, as you heard Elliot talk about, part of this centered on, you know, he's been attacking potential witnesses in this case. Mike Pence, Bill Barr, General Milley. It's kind of in Trump's DNA to do that. He often does it in very personal terms. But if the panel rules against him, do you think he'd be able to help himself here? Uh, it, it's it's hard to imagine it. Uh, I mean, I thought it was very interesting in the proceedings when the uh, judges in making in questioning uh, the prosecution, questioning uh, defense counsel, used the example of Mike Pence. What if Trump issued a warning to Mike Pence before uh, he uh, he testified in this case? If he were to testify in in, a, in an open uh, trial. Uh, and, and said Mike Pence has a chance once again to do the right thing. I mean, we saw what happened on January 6th when Trump put so much pressure on Pence that it literally unleashed a mob seeking his execution. And Trump, just a couple of months after that, told me uh, that the mob was chanting, hang Mike Pence, because they were angry. Um, and he had absolutely no criticism whatsoever of the people calling for the execution of his vice president. So, no, I, I have a hard time imagining that even with a gag order, uh, that, that Trump won't test the limits of that gag order. You mentioned, you know, the last days of the Trump White House. And in your book, there's a chapter where you kind of see this isolated and defeated Trump. He's you know been banished to Mar-a-Lago. It's the end of his presidency. And you write about how the days that followed him, you know, were, were 
kind of bleak that he was spending his days DJing on the patio at Mar-a-Lago. You know, just this remarkable moment from going to the White House to this. I'm wondering what you think those days, how his first term ended, would tell you about what a second Trump term would look like. Well, Caitlin, one thing I detailed uh, is how in the final uh, weeks, really the final few months of the Trump uh, administration, uh, they went about a process of trying to root out all the people that were in any way disloyal or not sufficiently loyal to Donald Trump. Johnny McEntee, his very junior aide, uh, who at one point was just carrying the president's bags around and then was put in charge of, of the White House personnel office, led this effort to root out uh, disloyalists. And by the time you got to January 6th, there were very few people left to challenge the president, but there were a few. Uh, there were people like White House counsel uh, Pat Cipollone who tried uh, to keep him from doing things that were blatantly illegal. Of course, uh, gone shortly before January 6th, but Bill Barr uh, at the uh, Justice Department and Jeffrey Rosen who, uh, who, who replaced him. Uh, the thing is, I believe, based on the reporting in this book, that a second Trump term begins with all of those people who would have kept him in check, who did keep him at least partially in check in those final days uh, of his presidency, would be gone. They wouldn't be there. They're going to hire for loyalty. As one of Jockey, Johnny McEntee's uh, uh, top aides back then has put it more recently, uh, that loyalty is more important than policy. You can teach policy, but you can't teach loyalty. They are going to make sure that this is not a team of rivals, not a team of, of people supporting the Constitution first and foremost, but a team of people supporting at all costs Donald Trump. And it also speaks to how he viewed people who supported Biden. I mean, you write that that he hung up on Kim Kardashian at one point because he assumed that she had voted for, for Joe Biden. Yeah, he, he doesn't want to deal with any disloyalty whatsoever. He saw that as a betrayal. By the way, he had no idea who Kim Kardashian actually voted for. But Kim Kardashian, uh, who had, who's become an advocate for criminal justice reform, was going and trying to get his help uh, in seeking a pardon, uh, a clemency for somebody who was on death row. And Trump didn't want to hear about it, just wanted to, it berated her over the phone. You want help from me? You want me to help you after you voted for Joe Biden? Uh, so that's, you know, that's the attitude is loyalty above all costs. It is loyalty above policy. It is loyalty uh, not to the Constitution or to the country, but loyalty to Donald Trump. And, and, you know, when I think about this over the weekend when we saw what happened in Argentina with the, the leader who won there, you know, we as we covered the White House, you saw Trump had this affinity for for these strongman leaders you know, he's congratulating this newly elected president of Argentina, someone who has drawn comparisons to Trump because of a populist message, embracing conspiracies. I mean, what do you make of looking at what a second Trump term could potentially look like, the way that his style has spread overseas? Well, and I think that he, it's both his style that has spread, but I think he also feeds off that. He admires uh, these strongmen leaders, whether it be Putin or President Xi or Kim Jong-un or uh, Viktor Orban in, in Hungary, the new newly elected uh, soon-to-be leader of Argentina. You know, there's an incident that I uh, wrote about that, I, that, that had never uh, come to light before. At the very end of the Trump White House, 
uh, the leaders of the army put out a statement. This is the chief of staff of the army and the secretary of the army put out a statement. You remember when Michael Flynn had come out and called for martial law or suggested there could be martial law to rerun the election. And the leaders, the active duty leaders of the army put out a very simple statement saying, there is no role for the US military in determining the outcome of an American election. Very basic and fundamental statement. There's no role for the US military in determining the outcome of an election. Trump was infuriated and directed uh, his, uh, his man, Johnny McEntee, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, to make sure that that never happened again. McEntee reported back to him that he had spoken to the Secretary of Defense, who spoke to both those army leaders and assured him it would never happen again, and if it did, they would both be fired. I think that Trump, in a second term, kind of fancies himself as somebody that will be the commander, not just of the executive branch, but the military, you know, the commander in chief, but not in a way in the traditional sense that we've seen presidents, but that they will respond to him on all things, including things domestically, whether it be the Insurrection Act, putting down rioters, or whatever he had in mind with what they would do in determining the outcome of an election. John Carl, it's a lot of good reporting in this book, a very important read. Thank you for joining us here on, tonight on CNN. Thank you, Caitlin. Great to have you. Ahead, someone who's trying to prevent that second Trump term with everything that he has got. His 2024 Republican primary opponent, Chris Christie, will join me. Plus, families of hostages met with Israel's prime minister today. They want answers. That comes amid optimism from the U.S. We'll speak to a family member of an American hostage right after this. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, the White House says that hostage negotiations are, quote, getting close to the end. For 45 days, Hamas has held more than 200 people captive. Sources tell CNN that a possible deal could include the release of 50 hostages or so for a four to five day pause in fighting. But I should note, nothing has been agreed to yet. Nothing is final. We've been speaking to Israeli officials regularly about how fluid these talks are, where they're going. They've been urging a lot of caution. But what we do know is that the pressure on the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is only growing more intense tonight. The families of Israeli hostages met with him in his war cabinet earlier. They want answers and a written commitment to bring their family members home. Three-year-old Abigail Adan is the youngest known American hostage. Her parents were killed in the October 7th attacks. I'm joined now by her great-aunt, Liz Hirsch-Naftali, I should note she was appointed to the U.S. Commission for the Preservation of America's Heritage Abroad by President Biden last year. And I'm so glad that you're here tonight. And I'm sorry that we're meeting under these circumstances. When you hear from the White House that they're hopeful a deal is close, have you gotten or your family any information about a deal from Israel or from the U.S. or anybody? We hear what you hear. We hear what everybody's hearing. It's, it's frustrating because through this whole time, it's been dark. It's, we have been, metaphorically, it's dark. We don't know. And virtually, it is 
dark for these people that are in Gaza. We have no answers. And people think that we're getting specific information. And just like everybody we hear, there's a very close to having a deal. And until we actually see hostages released, we really don't really know anything. And you're wearing the number on your jacket uh, of how many days that she has been held in Gaza. I mean, if you could speak to the, those people who are negotiating, the officials who are negotiating these, these talks, what would you want them to know? Well, first, 44 is the amount of days since these innocent civilians were abducted and taken as hostages. And I wear this in solidarity with Rachel Goldberg, whose son Hirsch mm-hmm. was kidnapped, taken, had his arm blown off, and then was taken as a hostage. And we have been wearing this to really make it clear that 44 days, how long? Abigail, she is a three-year-old little girl. There are over 30 children. There's over 50 children and mothers. I can't imagine as a mother what it's like to be somewhere in the dark, somewhere without, without the family. And Abigail is an orphan. Abigail's parents were murdered on October 7th, and she is with... How are her siblings doing? I know they survived. They survived. in a closet. And, you know, how, how, how are as a 6- and a 10-year-old after surviving, um, after seeing both their parents murdered? Um, they have a beautiful family. They have a loving family. And they are able to be themselves and to talk about what happened and to share what happened. And they're very very much forward in telling what their stories are. And they're with their grandparents and with their aunts and uncles, many who li- survived from the kibbutz. So they're part of a community and they grew up with them nearby. I can't even imagine the trauma that, that a six and a 10 year old would feel over this. I can't. And when you talk about Abigail, her fourth birthday is this Friday. I mean, what do you think about when you think about the fact that she could be turning four and trapped in Gaza? Well, I can't imagine. I can't imagine her having a birthday and turning four um, alone without her family. And I think about her sister and brother, and their one hope is that Abigail comes home. And for them to have her come home before Friday and to be there and have her celebrate her birthday in their arms is a dream I have. And... And I just imagine, I keep hoping that each day we wake up and we hear that there really is a release. Because, you know, you think about it, a nine-month-old child turns 10 months in, as a hostage. And you think of Abigail turning four as a hostage. These are innocent civilians. These are children that did babies. nothing. Babies. And so, you know, I, I, I just... I keep hoping and believing, and there's been so much outpouring of love and support from people across the world and people from all different backgrounds. It's a humanitarian issue. This is not political. These are people that were innocent civilians. And I just keep thinking, like, as a mother, having a child as a hostage, it's, it's inconceivable, to be honest. It is inconceivable, and I hope you know that we're all thinking of you, and we realize how important it is to tell your stories, and we're hopeful for Abigail and for everyone that they all come home. Well, thank thank you, you. Thank you for letting me tell our story, 
And, you know, I just want to tell you, I keep Abigail's picture with me all the time. And this is the strength because when I look at this picture, I believe that she is going to come home and be with her family and we are going to be able to embrace her and that we will be able to bring home the hostages. Thank you, Liz. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. And we're hopeful for that, too. Thank you. Of course, Israel has been a massive topic on the campaign trail, even here at home. We're going to speak with the candidate, a candidate who went there, Chris Christie. He just spent time on the ground in Israel. He has a new warning for voters tonight. He'll join us live in moments. Tonight on the ground in New Hampshire, Governor Chris Christie with a new warning for voters who are considering making Donald Trump the GOP nominee. If Trump is the nominee, because if Trump is the nominee, I bet you Manchin's going to run. And you could have a situation where nobody gets 270. And then it goes to the House of Representatives. And if you think our country's divided now, imagine when that happens. Those jokers took three weeks to pick a speaker. Imagine how long it'll take them to pick a president. And who knows where that'll end up. Well, that could be a nightmare scenario, but one that Governor Christie clearly sees as a possibility. The former New Jersey governor and Republican presidential candidate is here with me now. Governor Christie, I think, you know, half that audience probably broke out in a cold sweat, the other half in hives when you said that. Do you really think that could happen? Sure. And it absolutely is a possibility. Look, the, the country's been very clear, Caitlin. Um, you know, a lot of times polling that's close, you can wonder whether it's really true or not. But I've seen, you know, the polling that you've seen, which is 75% or more of the people in the United States don't want it to be a Trump-Biden matchup. And if that's what it turned out to be, you know, you'd be in a situation where I think for sure you'd see these no-labels folks um, coming in and Joe Manchin or some other candidate would come into the race, and then you really could have a situation where no one gets to 270. And so I think that's another risk that Republican voters have to consider um, when you're considering whether or not to vote for Donald Trump. Well, and I mean, there is a, a plan for what would happen there. And basically, each state would get a single vote. And right now, if you look at Republicans control 26 state delegations, Democrats have 22. I mean, this is obviously far-fetched, I should note, but given the presence of these third-party candidates and potential candidates right now, I mean, how destabilizing do you fear that scenario would be? Well, look, I think the country would be horribly divided by that kind of result. And and let me make clear to the people watching tonight, I didn't bring this up out of thin air. Um, I got asked a direct question about the potential impact of third-party candidates on the race. And, And I think that that's a real risk. But it just, again, shows you, goes to the bigger point, Caitlin, is that, you know, Donald Trump <clears throat> cannot win this election straight out. And <clears throat> the problem is that, you know, he's out there, you know, arguing his case to a limited audience. Um, he's not spending any time on TV like I am with you answering questions. Um, he's not doing town hall meetings. He goes out, he gives a two-hour rambling speech where half the time he can't even remember who he's running against says he's running against Barack Obama. It's the Vindication and Vengeance Tour um, where he's going to you know, go out and tell all the people that he's going to get to um, if he's president again. Uh, this is hardly inspiring stuff. And I think that's why you see the country so against a, a Trump-Biden rematch. You mentioned 
that sometimes he gets, you know, where he is mixed up. That's something that we often hear, you know, the White House bring up when people are talking about President Biden's age. Yeah, I just have to ask you, given that this letter was released by by the former president today saying that he is in excellent health and had excellent cognitive exams. It doesn't have any details or test results or specifics or any way to, you know, independently verify it. Do you trust that letter? Well, no, if it's anything like the letter he got in 2016, um, he wrote it himself and just had some some doctor sign it for him. So, no, I don't put any credibility behind the letter, Caitlin. And, and look, the fact is that what's getting to Donald Trump is less age and more pressure because he knows the walls are closing in on him. He's getting ready to go to trial. He's in the midst of a trial right now for uh, his business in New York. He's getting ready to go to trial the day before Super Tuesday um, for what happened on January 6th. And he knows that Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff, one of the founders of the Freedom Caucus, is going to testify against him and testify that he committed crimes and that he directed Mark Meadows to commit crimes. This is devastating stuff. And Donald Trump knows the walls are closing in. And I think that's affecting him even more than his age. Let's talk about you, because in CNN's latest poll of New Hampshire primary voters, you're at 14 percent behind Nikki Haley. She's at 20 percent. Donald Trump is still at the top. He's at 42 percent. You dropped out of the race in 2016 after you were sixth in New Hampshire. How well do you need to do in New Hampshire to justify staying in this race? Got to do well, Caitlin. And uh, I'm not going to put a a place on it now. Um, But, you know, I'll know it when I see it. And you've seen me operate before. If I don't think I do well enough, I'll get out of a race. I have no interest in being a spoiler. I have an interest in being president of the United States. And um, if I'm rewarded by the voters of New Hampshire with a strong finish, um, I'm going to take this thing all the way to the convention. And I think that's exactly what's going to happen. So you will only stay in this race through the convention if you have a strong finish in New Hampshire? Yes, I will. What about South Carolina? I mean, does that, is it only based off how you do in New Hampshire? Does that, do the states that follow matter? Well, no, look, I think that the race is going to narrow significantly. And, and, you know, when you get to South Carolina, I assume that Nikki Haley has to win South Carolina. I mean, for heaven's sake, it's her home state. I would hope she has to win. If she doesn't win there, I think that's a problem. And quite frankly, uh, you know, she's, you know, said she's going to do second place in Iowa. So there's high expectations for her now. Um, and we'll see if she meets them. Well, I mean, Donald Trump is certainly polling above her in South Carolina. It would be quite something if she did did win that state. Donald Trump, you know, has, as you noted, he's not. <laughs> hold Go on, ahead. Caitlin. Go ahead. Caitlin hold, Caitlin, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second. She was. She's a two-term governor of South Carolina. If you don't win your home state, which state exactly are you going to win? That's the question for everybody. I mean, Donald Trump is polling above everyone in every state. I understand that, but I will tell you this. Um, we had a primary in New Jersey. You could count on the fact that I'd win it. <laughs> okay. Governor Christie, I mean, well, we'll see what the, the numbers look like there. I mean, Donald Trump, though, as you noted, has repeatedly refused to show up to the Republican debates. You have said before you were going to follow him around the country because he was absent on that debate stage. Why haven't we seen you do so? I've tried. I tried in New Hampshire. I was shut out of the building um, in New Hampshire the day he he uh, registered for the ballot. Um, his campaign closed the entire state house along with the Secret Service and said only people invited by the Trump campaign 
could go into the building. So, you know, unless you're willing to kiss his rear end, um, you can't you can't get anywhere near him. Um, and that just shows how afraid he is of seeing me face to face and confronting his record um, and his failure on behalf of the people of this country. So I'm going to keep trying. But, you know, he and his campaign uses the Secret Service to keep people away. Governor Chris Christie, as always, thank you for your time tonight following that town hall in New Hampshire. Caitlin, thanks so much for having me and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family as well. Tonight we are seeing a growing revolt in the tech world that could have implications for really everybody. The CEO of OpenAI dramatically ousted and now the majority of the 800 employees left behind are threatening to quit. We'll fill you in on the artificial intelligence drama right after this. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, we are seeing a massive power shift within an industry that could one day impact every part of our lives. Microsoft announcing that it has hired Sam Altman to lead its artificial intelligence group. That came just days after his surprise firing as the CEO of the company that he co-founded, OpenAI. That's the company that created the popular artificial chatbot that you may have heard of, ChatGPT. But the drama here is not over yet, or even close, it appears so. Hundreds of employees are now threatening to leave OpenAI over his ouster, and there are reports that he could potentially end up back there. All of this is important to watch. We're talking about technology that even Bill Gates says is as revolutionary as the Internet. Joining me now to talk more about this is the professor of marketing at NYU's Stern School of Business, Scott Galloway. Scott, I'm so glad to have you on to talk about this because I think there's a lot of people who are at home who, you know, they may have no idea what OpenAI is or ChatGPT, but the artificial intelligence industry is booming right now. It's important and it could, you know, eventually affect every single one of us. What do you think and how would you explain Sam Altman's firing and the move to Microsoft and what that means for his company and for AI generally? Uh, good to be with you, Kaylin. I don't. I don't think I've been on your show before. Um, this is extraordinary, un- unprecedented. You had a company that, at the close of business on Friday, was worth more than General Motors and Ford, and as of tonight, may be worthless because, according to Wired, ninety plus percent of the entire employee base says they're going to go to Microsoft if Sam Altman isn't reinstated. I think. On sort of a meta level, what it is is a fissure or a collision between a nonprofit board and a very capitalist, commercial-minded management team, and the two just collided. But we've never seen anything like this. I think the big winner here is Microsoft. I would bet in the next 48 hours, either Microsoft controls uh, OpenAI uh, because Sam has been reinstalled there and Microsoft becomes the biggest owner with new board seats. I can't imagine the board isn't going to resign en masse here because the board is supposed to be a fiduciary and they have literally uh, not read the room in terms of shareholders or employees. What On a bigger level, and I'll wrap up here, we should all hope that the board was wrong 
And I think an interesting question would be, what was it that had them so alarmed here that they would unceremoniously fire a CEO who's built $90 billion in value? This is a big deal. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, and they referenced his communications with the board saying he wasn't candid, but you know they haven't produced any smoking gun or told anyone what exactly it was uh, that led to his ouster. But I think with the bigger question, when you look at AI generally is, you know, there's very clearly a rift in in this world of people who think it's, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread and people who are worried about how fast it's growing and the danger that that pace could pose. Does that have anything to do with this? Well, that's what it appears the fissure here is. But I would argue it represents something bigger, and that is what might be the beginning of the end of ESG investing. And if you look at the corporate structure or the governance structure, it just looked ridiculous. There were all of these different entities that supposedly had total control over another entity. And what appears to have control here is money and shareholder value, full stop. That the notion of trying to collide this sort of, uh, you know, effective capitalism, whatever the term was, effective altruism, excuse me, combined with a for-profit mindset, the two just don't work. And I think more more broadly, I think people are questioning ESG, and that is ESG funds have dramatically underperformed funds that just pursue a profit motive via alpha. And I think this is the ultimate indication or collision of that, and that is you are either a for-profit entity seeking commercial success, or you're a nonprofit thinking about risk to humanity, and the two apparently could not coexist here. But yeah, I think there's room for concern. Well, that's really fascinating. I mean, the idea that you think this is the end of that, that, that this is something that could, I mean, we've seen that argument ba- made by a lot of executives and billionaires who say, you know, ESG doesn't work. I mean, does this bolster that argument or does it just show how it, it conflicts, I guess? I think it bolsters, uh, like I said, I think this is the beginning of ESG investing. Because you had a board that basically, to give them the benefit of the doubt, there was something they were worried about. They were worried that the combination of trying to err on the side, they, they tried to err on the side of risk to humanity, it appears, and got very concerned. And the management team, and it appears 90 plus percent of the employee base, was erring on the side of being more commercially aggressive. And the reality is capitalism and the pursuit of shareholder value trounced the concerns that the board has. I've never seen a switch like this. This was a board that got caught so flat, flat-footed. And in the, talk about the mother of all not reading the room. But you could make this same argument, correctly or incorrectly, good for humanity, bad for humanity, for all of ESG investing that has dramatically underperformed hedge funds and investors that are more focused on just finding alpha and getting profits. I think this represents a much bigger issue. That is, people who claim to be concerned more broadly about humanity and companies that are unfettered by this concern and just go after profits. And there's no evidence that these two can peacefully coexist in our current capitalist model. Wow. And you can't run a company without those employees. Scott Galloway, really interesting conversation. Thank you for your time tonight. Thank you. Ahead, it is an old Thanksgiving tradition at the White House that was overseen by America's oldest president. It's my birthday today, and they can actually sign birthday. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. (laughs) Difficult. You heard some laughs there in the Rose Garden, but some argue that his age is no joke. We'll talk about that on his 81st birthday next. As he oversaw the White House tradition of pardoning two turkeys ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday, 
President Biden had this quip on his 81st birthday. And by the way, I, it's my birthday today, and they can actually sing birthday to me. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. It's difficult. <laughs> Obviously, you see the president there laughing it off. Obviously, when you look at polls, voters certainly aren't because it regularly registers as a concern for them, something that the former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, David Axelrod, has been warning about for some time now. He even told The New York Times, Marine Dowd, this about President Biden, saying, quote, I think he is a 50-50 shot here, but no better than that, maybe a little worse. He thinks he can cheat nature here, and it's really risky. Here tonight with me is Alyssa Farah Griffin, a former Trump White House communications director, and Ashley Allison, former Obama White House senior policy advisor. And therefore, Ashley, I am going to start with you. I mean, the White House is obviously trying to use Biden's age uh, as they're making fun of it. I mean, they posted this photo tonight on Instagram where he's got this birthday cake with uh, about a thousand candles <laughs> in front of him. You know, they are trying to laugh off these concerns. I think the question is, is that strategy going to work here? Well, look, everyone knows how old Joe Biden is. It's not going to change. And people knew that when they elected him in 2020. To Axe's piece about it being about a 50-50% chance, I feel like that's the case in almost every presidential election at this point. You cannot take any race for granted, including this one coming up in 2024. But I also think outside of the president's age, People want to see a policy portfolio that aligns with their values and aligns um, with their pocketbooks. And so the Biden administration, the Biden campaign is going to have to go out and really sell what they have been doing, how they have been governing in these last three and a half years and how they would continue to do um, that for a second term. And I think people can step aside from his age of 81 if they agree with his policy decisions. When compared to Donald Trump, most people do. Well, and speaking of Trump, I mean, Alyssa, his campaign released this letter today saying that he's in excellent health, that his cognitive exams. I mean, I think we all remember man, woman, person, camera, TV, when he tried to, to say that he had taken that test. Donald Trump, if he's reelected, would be 83 at the end of, of his second term. I mean, what concerns do you think that voters have about about his age as well? Well, not subtle to put that out on Joe Biden's 81st birthday. Um, listen, the problem in politics is that perception often becomes reality. The reality is 73% of Americans think that Joe Biden is too old, that it, or at least that his age is a major factor in the election. When you look at how Donald Trump is perceived, who's 77, he's not much younger than Joe Biden, the numbers are very different. People see him as having more stamina, being somebody who's healthier. He's not perceived as as old as Biden. So on the age factor, I don't know that that hurts Trump as much. But those that that should not be the primary issue that we're dealing with. I mean, listen, voters care about it. But Donald Trump and Joe Biden, you could not have a starker contrast of two individuals. And I think the fact that Biden keeps keeps leaning into the age, I actually don't think is helpful. I think this idea that he should make jokes about it. I think he needs to be putting forward a policy agenda. The Washington Post has reporting that he doesn't even have a major field staff in the five key um, swing states. That's where they need to be focusing. Well, and when you look at what those swing states look like, what the numbers look like, Ashley, I mean, there's a new poll from NBC showing 70 percent of young voters, they're between 18 and 34, they don't approve of the way that President Biden has been handling the Israel-Hamas war. Obviously, he won young voters in 2020 by a very comfortable margin. What do you make of that change and how the White House addresses that with, you know, a year to go before the election? 
Look, I think this is a very important issue that I don't really know if it's a campaign issue because the reality is a campaign just pushes a the governing agenda of the person who was actually in office. But listen, we cannot Democrats cannot lose young voters. They cannot use lose black voters. They cannot lose progressive voters on this issue. And so what people are saying is that particularly the young people in this country are saying, look, we put our trust in you and we are saying this election cycle, we are going to vote with our values and our morals. And we want you to hear us now a year out that we are not aligned with how you are handling this. And we want to have a conversation with you. And it's different than when it was in 2020 and we were having those same similar tough conversations with young voters, because the reality is at that point, he was then vice president, Joe Biden, and he was not governing. And so it's not about making uh, commitments. It's about actually how are you governing right now? And I think the Biden administration should really take heed to that and consider an alternative approach. It's not just the progressive left. It is faith leaders. It is the Pope. It is the King Institute that have called for a different approach to this Israel and Hamas conflict. And I think the administration is going to have to take notice of that if they want those voters to stay in their coalition come 2024. And, and Alyssa, there's, I mean, a moment where used to work in comms in the White House. You're very familiar what it's like to have to come out to that to that podium. We saw John Kirby, who is from the National Security Council, obviously there today, responding to this, you know, nickname that Biden has gotten from from people who disagree with the fact that he has not called for a ceasefire, calling him genocide Joe. Mm-hmm. This is what he said from the briefing room today. They've been calling him genocide Joe. They wrote it on the gates. Um, do you have a response from the White House to that nickname that they've settled okay. on? We're not worried about nicknames and bumper stickers. I mean, uh, it, it's First Amendment free speech. Moral clarity, leadership. John Kirby's an excellent public servant, and I, servant. And I will say that where the boat, the Biden administration is, is where many independents are, and frankly, moderate Republicans. So I hope that they continue their strong support for Israel. Alice Fairgriffin, Ashley Allison, as always, thank you both, and great to have you both on. Up next, a shocking scene is happening right now off the coast of Hawaii. You see this image here. That is a plane that is as big as it looks. How everyone on board it survived and what happened. A dramatic scene is playing out in the waters of Hawaii right now. A large U.S. Navy aircraft ending up in the bay off Oahu after overshooting the runway at the Marine Corps base there in Hawaii. Thankfully, we are told there are no casualties. Nine people were on that aircraft that you can see here. They are currently being assessed tonight. We're still waiting on details of their current condition. But I should note that this comes as the National Weather Service showed gusts up to 21 miles per hour. Missed visibility was down to around a mile at the time of this incident. We'll keep an eye on this and keep you updated. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.